Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. Today I'm sitting in person with a woman who has reinvented the notion of comedy. Perhaps best described as a storyteller, Hannah Gadsby has been part of the comedy scene in Australia since 2006. Then, in 2018, Hannah shot to global fame when her show, Nanette, was released on Netflix. She followed that with a show called Douglas, which was highly acclaimed, and now she is touring with her latest show, A Body of Work. In between all that, she managed to find time to write her memoir, Ten Steps to Nanette, A Memoir Situation. Hannah, I am delighted we finally got together. As you know, we were supposed to record this episode in London in April, and then I got COVID. So thank you for sticking with me throughout all the drama of rescheduling. Ah, no problem. I feel like COVID's the new hangover, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well... If it was like that for me, it lasted quite a few days, and I have had the occasional hangover in my life, but not one that long-lasting. Good to to know. Now, I want to simply start by finding out how you are, given the body of work tour is going to take you around the world, Australia, New Zealand, Portugal, Germany, Italy, Finland, and the list goes on. I think most people would assume that those who go on stage for a living do it because they're extroverts who thrive on the attention, yet you are someone who gets exhausted by social interaction. Can you give us an insight into what you do on tour? What's it like? It's it's a little bit of a, a, a difficult life for me, but also it's great. <laughs> so it's uh, I love being on stage. I do enjoy doing what I do, particularly now that I've I've got success under my belt and people want to come and see me and I don't have to sell myself too hard. That's a real shift in the in the right direction for me. But touring itself is really exhausting. And particularly with the COVID of it all on this tour, our mantra on tour became, there might be rules. So <laughs> there's no sort of knowing which city will uh, want what restrictions, et cetera. And when we were touring Australia, of course, we, we kept getting stuck in places because we couldn't go back to Victoria because it was... Um, I don't know what we call it, lockdown. And so this tour has dragged on. It was supposed to be all over. But we've got another four months to go back, going back to Europe now. That was cancelled, bit of COVID, bit of broken leg. And so I like touring and I also hate it. And the bit of broken leg you <laughs> slipped over on ice in Iceland seems like the right place if you're going to slip over on yeah. ice. I like to keep my accidents to theme. The, last year, I hey, ruptured my ACL playing football, which seems appropriate. So in Iceland, I 
slipped on ice. And I, I had to, I had like I have seven, seven screws, four plates and a trauma band in there. I had, it was in February, I had the emergency surgery and then we're trying to tour. I was in a wheelchair for the first four weeks after that. And as an interesting way of learning just how inaccessible the world is, we'd go into a venue and it's like, yeah, yeah, it's accessible. And then like, we've got three steps to get onto stage. And it's like, I can't, I can't, I can't. Uh, use those steps. And then there was a raked stage in Glasgow, which I really enjoyed because, you know, wheelchairs just sloping toward the front. And, of course, I, if I'd forgotten what I was doing, I was just started rolling toward the audience, which added a bit of tension. But you get through it. And do you find that different countries, different people get laughs in different places? I mean, to do the show in Sydney versus, you know, Lisbon in Portugal, would it be a very different experience? Yeah, I'm always surprised, like, I shouldn't be surprised, but I am surprised by how little I have to change my material. There are a few throwaway lines that I have to clean up that I can use in Australia, you know, but America doesn't seem to care about netball. So, yeah, there's just little bits and, and pieces. But I've I found, you know, apart from the little edges, most of my material tends to hold. But, of course, I'm not. Maybe people are laughing because they're confused. <laughs> but. The different rules in different places. I've had a small insight into that because I used the word arse on breakfast television in the UK and apparently that's like a complete no-no and they had to beep it out and all the rest arse. of it. Whereas arse. Whereas here you'd be able to say that on breakfast TV, no problems. Yeah, that seems, there's some suddenly prudish. It's suddenly prudish. Yeah. I got caught out by it. Oh. But now let me take you back in time, back to your childhood. You write beautifully about it in your memoir and detail the characters in your family, your mum, your dad and your siblings with you as the youngest of five children. But you also take the reader through the pains of being and being viewed as different from other children. Can I start with the impact on you of growing up in Tasmania at a time when whether it was church or in the schoolyard or indeed any other part of society, you heard the message that being anything other than heterosexual was wrong and there was a fierce public debate about whether to decriminalise male homosexuality. What was that like for you growing up, that kind of environment? Well, at the time, because you're a fresh human, you really have no perspective on it. It just is your life and it is what it is and, and you move through it. And, and, of course, the debate was going on and people were talking about it before I was of an age where I had to think about my own sexuality. So it, it was more of a, a creeping suffocation and certainly not anything that I could fully comprehend until after I'd, I'd almost recovered from the trauma of it. So it's more of an exercise in hindsight for me to acknowledge that it was really awful and, you know, I'm just I very strongly believe that if you want people to be constructive citizens, you have to stop traumatising children. You know, I would have loved to have been a productive citizen sooner in my life, but it took some 20, 25 years to to clear the damage, or most, you know, enough of the damage to, to walk more squarely through the world. But I... At once had a great childhood. I had a, you know, by and large a great family. But there's just an, a sense of sadness and I feel like a waste when I, th you know, think about 
particularly as I, you know, got older and, you know, had to self-closet and to try and undo the internalised homophobia while trying to come to terms with your own sexuality is just a really unfair (laughs) state of things. And, you know, it's not, I'm not alone in that experience and it's not just to do with sexuality and gender. It's, you you know, people experience this across the spectrum of unacceptable identities, I guess we'll call it. And what about your consciousness of being a girl? You talk in the book that you and the brother that was closest to you in age were almost raised as twins. You were kind of treated the same. When was the first moment you might have thought to yourself, I am being treated differently because I'm a girl? Yeah, I think that's a lot to do with parental laziness that Hamish and I were just raised the same. It's like, ah, you may as well. We were the last two of five and, you know, people were busy. I think, you know, really being in the country, I grew up in a small town, it was in the country. So, you know, being a girly girl wasn't an advantage there. So it really didn't hit home until, you know, I started to, you know, go through puberty and then the expectations just changed almost on a dime. I'm not that old. We didn't have dimes. It's just a turn of phrase I heard. But, you know, it could have been a $2 note, though. But I don't think you can turn on them. I think you need you a coin. Slip over. Yeah, you need yeah. a coin. All right. <laughs> I remember $2 notes, though. Yeah. yeah, two cent piece then. What was on the two cent piece? I'm going to say in a kidna, but I think I might oh, be making cents. that up. It's five that's cents. five cents. How did you get elected? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's a it's a miracle, really. No one asked me that during all of my election <laughs> campaigns. Could have undone it. <laughs> they would have. That would have been the end. I think it was a wombat on the one cent. I'm not going to argue with you. No, don't. Don't. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah, so it was almost, you know, like overnight, you know, just the expectations of what you wore and, you know, what you're able to participate in just sort of changed immediately. And I found that really jarring because it didn't make any sense to me. I wanted to play sport. But also it was frustrating for me because none of these things were logical or a lot of these things are not logical. So you try to explain, you know, someone with my kind of brain, which is run on logic and problem solving, as like, you you can't wear shorts, you have to wear a dress. And it's just like, I fall over a lot. This is not helpful to that situation. So I really struggled. But I did have a mum who was just fiercely anti-misogyny, we'll call it. I just, she was just... You know, I was raised by a woman who was already calling bullshit on all that. It was just mostly at school with the other, you know, girls because they like to police as 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 high schoolers want to do. Um, so I had a lot of difficulty there because even though I tried to be a, a proper girl, I, I just couldn't do it. My best efforts fall short. I remember someone saying to me once, like my sister-in-law was like, I just really admire you. You just you just are who you are. You don't care that you're different. And I was just looking at her going, I try so hard not to be different. And was, <laughs> she thought she was complimenting me, but really she was shocking me. I'm like, what? People know? And what about gender roles now? You've said that you were often misidentified as a man when out in public and have experienced pockets of an almost vicarious male privilege as a result. Can you explain how that feels to us and what it has revealed to you about the way men and women are treated differently? I was never mistaken for a man long enough to get actual privilege from it. It's just a glimpse 
And what I notice is just how happy people seem to be to see a man. And then just watch the dis- disappointment descend when like, not a man. And it's I don't think it's conscious. I think we're raised to trust and like men and dislike women and hate everything in between. But, it, you know, I'm always clued into that moment where, you know, hello, sir. Oh. <laughs> But you're not in that moment long enough to fix the gender pay gap or anything like that? No, as much as I try. (laughs) um, uh, I'm afraid I'm yet to. Do you use the F word, feminism, to describe yourself? Fuck no. (laughs) It's a little joke. (laughs) What does that word mean to you and when would you have first used it about yourself? It just never made any sense to call myself anything other than that. Um, You know, who, who doesn't want control over their own body and their own path through life and, you know, to be able to decide how you want to contribute to the world. Like, it just makes perfect sense, particularly when I was younger, to call myself a feminist. But, of course, feminism is a very problematic world uh, because women, funnily enough, are not a monolith. So I find it's an interesting space that I think it's important to keep redefining that, you know, what your slice of feminism is. I just sort of feel like nothing <laughs> nothing matters if we can't sort the earth out, which I think ultimately that's where f- what I believe feminism is, is, you know, taking care, you know, and how you do that is, you know, there's a myriad of ways, but, you know, taking care of other people, taking care of yourself, taking care of the earth, you know, I, f- I feel like that they're the fundamentals that I operate on. And do you feel a sense of optimism? Do you think we're going in the right direction on those things, that we're learning to take better care of the earth, learning to better respond and accept and include each other? Do you feel optimistic or pessimistic? Neither. I just think you just have to keep chipping away at it. I think it, like as soon as you zoom out, it feels very bad. Um, (laughs) It's like, it's very bad. Things are not good. Uh, The world is in chaos and we're not learning our lessons quickly enough, you know, but ultimately the only thing that's going to get us out of this mess is empathy. And that's something you just have to do every day and in everything you do and you fail just as much as you succeed. But when I wrote Nanette, it was, you know, this huge sense of fatigue and pessimism that I felt around the world. And you know, I sort of sort of hit upon this idea as like, well, you can just do what you can do and you can only worry about your sphere of influence. And so that's how I approached that work and everything I do afterwards is like, you know, what do you want to put out in the world? How do you want to influence your your sphere? And I, you know, I realize I mean, I've got a much bigger sphere of influence than I did. But even then, I was like, I have quite a sphere of influence, um, you know, so what I do on stage counts. And through that, it's like I also think that process matters more than the result. How you set about to achieve something matters just as much as the result you're after. But ultimately, every day is a new day. If I've had enough sleep, I, I tend to feel more optimistic. Uh, not enough sleep. The world's ending. Comedy is a real school of hard knocks, though, isn't it? I mean, you came up by getting your start in comedy from winning a competition, raw comedy in Australia, and it 
sounds to me from your memoir and other things that I've heard that it's a it's a tough business. And what made you put yourself forward in that business when empathy clearly matters so much to you? It's such a core value it, and you weren't necessarily going to find a very empathetic environment. <laughs> the idea of comedy that fits perfectly with the ethos of empathy because you're having a conversation with a room full of people and you're trying to help them feel comfortable in order to behave as one, which is, you know, a a difficult thing to do. But I believe one way of approaching that is through the idea of empathy, which is listening to what's happening in the room and then, you know, uh, modifying what you do on stage uh, in order to get the get the feeling in the room that you want, um, and then ultimately making people relaxed enough to laugh or tense enough to laugh, like depending on how you approach it. So, in in just those terms, on the uh, let's let's call it call it the pure idea of comedy, it is perfectly suited to to my approach to life. But the reality of how it's structured, uh, the world, and, and it's it's competitive, it's combative, and you share an audience with people that you're made to feel you're competing with. Often when I was starting, I'd have to share the stage with with people who were doing the most abhorrent material, you know. Like I would go on stage after men who've done, you know, a good five minutes of rape jokes and the punchlines are not the rapists. <laughs> and um, So then the audience is laughing about that. So you're sitting side to stage going, I have to talk and make myself vulnerable to people who are laughing at that. And I didn't enjoy that part of it. And I quickly fell into the festival scene as opposed to the the, the circuit, the club circuit, because you got to create a little world, your show, and you travel the festivals and then you have a room. And in the beginning it was only three or four people in the room and that it would break your heart. It's very difficult to make four people laugh because they're sitting there going, I get the feeling this is not going to be very good. <laughs> but uh, you, you learn a lot. That's, you know, that's, for me, a much better heartbreak than trying to talk to people who just are just drunk. Mm. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a world for it. There's a role for it. There are people who are good at it, and not every comedian who does the circuit is doing this abhorrent material but a lot of them. You know, so I I quickly, you know, moved into a world where I had a little bit more control over the world that I was had on stage. And certainly once I got more successful, it was a real privilege because people came to see me. You know, you know some of the people who saw me and uh, my first Adelaide Fringe, you know, I, there was that audience of, of four people and I know at least three of them. <laughs> still come to my show every year. And they had, they had done. They didn't just suddenly remember when I was famous. Every year, I go, I think I like what you're doing. I'm going to see what you do next year. And that's, that's the really exciting thing, I think, about the festival circuit. In the club scene, it's people who are going, let's go see some comedy. So it's not intentional, which is fine. It's just a different world. Can we talk now about how Nanette would have changed your world? And I want to say to uh, listeners who have not seen Nanette that you need to stop this podcast right now and go and watch it and then come back to the podcast. It's an incredible show. And you, you talked before about how you need to be vulnerable, how you need to open yourself up when you're performing comedy. 
But this is, you know, a very deep show where you talk about abuse and trauma. Did it change you doing that? Did it feel cathartic? Did it feel scary? Very few people, I think, can imagine what it's like to talk about yourself in that way in front of so many people. It's a it's a very complicated text, um, both in the, the production of it and in the performance of it and in the reception of it. There's three, three very different phases. In the development of it, I was a dog with a bone and I had a problem to solve, you know, and that problem was this dissonance about who I was on stage and who I needed to be in life. And at, when I first began comedy, it was a really great way for me to build up my understanding of myself. You know, you, you've got to explain yourself to an audience so they, you know, feel comfortable in your presence. So in that way, you sort of develop a, an onstage persona. And in stand-up, those, those personas, by and large, are not too dissimilar to who you are offstage, but it is still performative. When the the marriage equality debate broke out, sort of like from 2014 onwards as it was ramping up there, I began to realise that I wasn't, I wasn't coping because I hadn't really processed the trauma of growing up in Tasmania during the debates and being so heavily closeted and deeply shamed. And you, you sort of get this, this almost feeling of you've come out so you're fine. And we've, we've processed it, we're fine. I'm close to my family, we're fine. But you're not fine. And I only realised that once the debate kicked in and just the same beats were being hit that I kept hearing when I was growing up. And I'm like, I'm wounded and I'm, I'm, I'm crumbling as a human. Like, and I didn't feel like I could keep doing what I was doing. So there was that feeling. And then I began to look back at how I'd tell my coming out story in my other shows. I'm like... I'm not acknowledging the pain. And I felt like nobody really acknowledged Tasmania, you know, in that what happened to Tasmania. It was just a joke and about time we caught up with the rest of Australia. What people often forget about that debate is that the mainland participated. I like this called the mainland, but the mainland participated in that. People who really stoked the fires of that debate were not Tasmanian. And I became really angry about that because the same figures were rising up in the gay marriage debate, the same politicians, the same divisive language. And I, you know, so that was the world in which I felt like I had to create Nanette. It was like, I want to tell my story properly. And at first I set myself the, t- the task of like, I'm a better comedian now. Like I've got experience and I've got a certain amount of comfort on stage. I know my audience can I tell my story properly and make it funny? And I quickly found out that, A, I, I couldn't, and also I didn't want to. And that was the moment. This is like, you know, I kept trying different ways of making my coming out story funny while still being true to the, the moment of it. And then I'm like, I don't want to. I don't want to make people laugh. I just wanted to, to, be, to be frank. Frank's a good guy. <laughs> and uh, so it was a, that's how I, but when, once I started performing it, then it took on another life of my own because, you know, you're coming out of yourself and you're, that's when it was really difficult because it's like I, was, I had nothing to hide behind. Mostly of what Nanette was, and it, this gets lost 
because of what has happened, but ultimately it was me talking to an audience that I'd built. So it was a safer space than what it became because, you know, I was doing Perth Comedy Festival like I did every year. I was doing Adelaide Fringe Festival like I did every year, Melbourne. And people who saw that show in the beginning had seen all my other shows. So that's the world in which I wrote that show and was ready to perform it, and then it just kept getting bigger and bigger. That's when I felt really afraid because I didn't know who I was talking to. And then the reputation of the show preceded it and then there was, you know, and my world began to change. I was doing more shows and more cities and then I went to New York and then we filmed it and and then it came out on Netflix and then it became so, my world was just changed. It was so much bigger. And bigger for you is not necessarily better. No, less is more. Yeah. Of the fame, the bits you like and bits you you hate. I mean, it, it gives you that access to an audience, doesn't it? So that matters so much, but there must be so many other things. I think generally, because I, ultimately I did it on my own terms, you know, like there's, there's no hiding after the net, is there? So, you know, you realise that the people who want to come and see your shows, you know, are there for you. So you feel like a little bit of, I felt a, a confidence that if I wanted to do something, I've I've earned you know, the respect to be able to do that. And my, I feel like my, my audience, my fan base are going to, you know, let me experiment as, a, as an artist a little bit more. So that's incredible. And you walk on stage in front of a room full of people who've gone out of their way to buy tickets to your show. If I think about who I was in my 20s, I couldn't afford to see me. So I really work hard to just like people have come out to see me. I've got to like I work harder than I've ever worked. And that part of it I love. I don't like being a figure at the centre of a divisive debate like that, you know, like what is comedy and, you know, how dare I talk. You know, that got – but that's died down now. The backlash from the show has has receded to a certain point. So I feel like I've – it did feel like I'd been caught in a riptide and I wasn't in control of my life for a, a while. And then the pandemic happened and I got some perspective. <laughs> and in your next show, Douglas, you speak openly about having autism and you talk, you know, about how autism is often missed in women. You were only diagnosed in recent years, so definitely diagnosed as an adult. What are you hoping that might do, raising it in Douglas? I mean, what are we not doing that we should be doing to assist kids with autism, girls with autism, adults who haven't been diagnosed? It's a very, it's a very complicated field and it's for me it's ever-evolving because I'm still trying to understand, uh, you know, the autism of it all. Like, I'm able to sort of curate my environment a little better now, which causes a lot less distress. I think I didn't realise how much distress I was experiencing just because I kept putting myself in, in environments that are um, um, violent to me and my, my sensory palate, as we'll call it. So I, since the diagnosis, I, I've been able to like, look after myself better and that, that is worth it alone. Talking about it openly, I was a bit frightened about doing it at first because, you know, you don't want to teach when you're on stage. You do want to be. And you look back on my work, I'm like, I've always been autistic. That's why I got diagnosed in the end because people in the audience are like, I have autism. 
I can guarantee you have autism because essentially it is how you process the world. So naturally it, it, it comes out through the way that you communicate. But it just gave me a sense of confidence with uh, how I thought because it just is what it is. I process the world differently. So that's kind of exciting. But there's also grief because I didn't know it for so long and things could have been a little bit easier had I had that. But talking about it I think is really important because I think people with autism have to speak about autism because for too long it's been the conversation has been defined by parents who are trying to understand but then also like the toxic uh, anti-vax debate and Rain Man. And because of that, that's the, that for a long time that was the only conversation People like me didn't understand that they had autism. And I just think everyone could stand to think about how they think. It's a really interesting place to be, but as it stands, neurotypical people don't have to do any work. It's up to people on the spectrum to do all the extra or risk being completely isolated and and popped in the corner. I think we're in a moment where, uh, you know, autism advocates are, you know, really you know, stepping up and, like, since I've begun talking about it publicly, you know, I, I, I don't have to... I'm not alone. There are a lot of people talking about it now, which is a good space, but a long way to go. Part of the comedy that you do, uh, I love so much of it, but I must admit the bit that I just really love is when you talk about the treatment of women in high art, which you manage to make funny even as you are exposing a very deep truth about women's treatment. You use terminology like art teaches us there are two types of women, virgins and whores. Do you remember the moment you first noticed that this was what it was like? You did an art history degree. And how does it make you think about art now? How should we be thinking about art? You know, art is just a reflection of what, what what's going on. You know, I always used art as a way of understanding the world at large. So in a way, I found it comforting that the misogyny of the little world that I existed in was all the way up to the to the highest part of our uh, our culture, according to the canon. And so when you're faced with that, like, breadth of evidence that th- the system is in place, it's actually a, quite freeing because you know it's wrong. Like you look at those women and you're just like, I don't exist as this. I don't exist to be looked at by men. Like I don't exist. I might be a witch, but otherwise I don't, you know. And so it just always seemed silly. Like it's held with such reverence and I'm like, she does not have a skeletal system. This is the ideal human female form. She cannot physically stand up. This body doesn't, you know, it's, it's, the early Barbie doll, you know. it's So, you know, I found it a great place to confirm my suspicions. But it's also frustrating because it's, you want to find female artists who've defied this because surely I'm not the first person who's gone, this is bullshit. Like, you know you're not the first person to call bullshit on bullshit because bullshit exists to be called. But female artists are erased from participating, from, you know, expressing yourself and... So I just found it an exercise in, you know, frustration, but also, you know, always fun. It's a great frame to put around it, though. Get that little joke there, art frame. Thank you. Um, <laughs> because it, it is the ultimate 
this isn't me. You know, I think I think a lot of women navigate the world and they hit sexist moments and they walk away from those moments going, this is something I did, it's something about me, whereas, you know, you're really begging us to look across history, across time and say, no, that's not about you, it's about this system that's been there for so long in so many ways. I mean, my um, my mum was always sort of, you know, she was raised Catholic and, and she well and truly lapsed, but she was always, like, calling out the Bible because it's like, you know, sure, Adam and Eve, whatever, but how do we know it was Eve's fault, she'd say, because she's like, it's only ever been men who've interpreted the texts. And she'd go, and I don't think we can trust them. Most men don't know when the dishes need doing, so how are they going to see the subtleties in a text? Um, <laughs> so, like... That's where I'm coming from. Like, it was taught by a master, really. <laughs> Wise words from your mum. I'm going to come now to the final few questions that I ask all of my guests. I always put a fact to them. And the fact for you is comedy is a notoriously sexist industry. A 2018 study found that 26% of female comedians had been sexually assaulted by another comedian. of female comedians regularly dealt with inappropriate language from fellow comedians, and 59% of them had turned down work because they felt uncomfortable about another performer on the lineup. Does any of that surprise you? Yeah, I was going to say, like, I don't quite know how to describe my response to that fact, except what it's not, (laughs) and that's, I'm not surprised. Yeah, but I just don't think, that's special to comedy. I'd be surprised to see, you know, better statistics at McDonald's. You know, it's just part of the larger landscape. Thank you for that. My next no quest- worries. <laughs> My next question is, what's the worst misogyny you've ever had to face? Oh, I don't know. This is how deeply misogyny has embedded itself. Like, this is a feminism podcast and you've just asked me to rank misogyny. And like, that is part of the patriarchy is this system of ranking things. So I'm just going to call it like, it's just low level lifelong suffocation. I don't want to lecture you about misogyny. (laughs) You don't like it. Uh, The use of the word lecture and misogyny between the two of us. I love it. Um, (laughs) If you became goddess Hannah, for a minute, and you could uh, have all power to change one thing for women, what would you change? I don't know. Because women are not a monolith. I reckon I'd just give women whatever they wanted, just one thing, except women who own more than one car. I don't think they need anything more. But just, like, if every woman on earth just got whatever they wanted, the one wish, I think there might be a few bad eggs that are, you know, you know, one of them's going to ask for world peace, and I, and and a lot of like, and so you've you know someone's going to you know a lot of women are going to make better lives for their families like that's so you know I think God whatever they want I don't know what women want we'd have to call you Jeannie Hannah then wouldn't we you going around the world granting wishes <laughs> imagine. Coming back to Virginia Woolf, this uh, podcast named for a room of one's own, a podcast of one's own, Virginia says, if you do not tell the truth about yourself, you cannot tell it about other people. Hannah Gadsby says, 
I mean, am I no like am I supposed to correct her? <laughs> if you want. Um, <laughs> what would you say? I just need a ballpark here. What do you say um, to that? I would say if you do not tell the truth about yourself, you cannot tell it about other people. I would agree with that and I think that that's actually a big theme of your work, that you bravely tell the truth about yourself and it helps us see the truth about ourselves. Well, thank you for doing my job for me. That seems <laughs> I don't feel like I can add to that. Yeah, good. I'm not afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, <laughs> I, I think a good place to be is not to be delusional about yourself. It's easy to be self-delude, but I think... I think what I discovered through Nanette was it causes more damage than it's worth. Hannah, thank you so much for coming and talking to me today. After all of these months, just been delighted to have this conversation. Pleasure. It's been great. Thank you. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the institutes, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepherd and Connie Blafari, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash G-I-W-L and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at G-I-W-L Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next time.